0: If you would, I'd invite you to uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 21. As we, uh, this morning, conclude our uh, series in the Gospel of John, we'll be in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 25 this morning. John chapter 21, verses 18 through 25. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he brings us to this third occasion in which Jesus appeared to the disciples and Jesus had appeared to Simon as we saw last week and the rest of those who were gathered there and had asked Simon three times, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? And he had replied in the affirmative. And now Jesus speaks these words to Peter. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now back when I was in junior high, 7th and 8th grade, I had a teacher who had a phrase that he would use when someone had gotten distracted or was not focused on doing their work. He would maybe call out their name and say, "...on task." In other words, don't be distracted. Focus. Pay attention. Do your work. On task. Those of you who have been teachers maybe know that experience. And in a way, don't we find Jesus doing the same thing here in these closing verses of the Gospel of John? After reinstating Peter to his ministry as an apostle, as we saw last week, here we see Jesus telling Peter the price that He would have to pay, so to speak, as he followed Jesus and performed his apostolic and pastoral task of feeding Christ's sheep. And we find him redirecting Peter's focus when Peter was distracted by an unnecessary and overly curious question. And so as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under two main headings. First, follow Jesus no matter what happens to you. And secondly, follow Jesus no matter what happens to anybody else. Follow Jesus no matter what happens to you. Follow Jesus no matter what happens to anybody else. So after our Lord had asked Peter three times that question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, all three times. Jesus moves on now in verse 18 to speak of what would happen to Peter in the future as he followed jesus he says there truly truly i say to you when you were younger you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished but when you grow old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go now if you were reading this for the first time you might not be exactly sure what jesus had intended to convey in saying that. It's a little bit cryptic, a little bit unclear. But just in case there was any doubt about Jesus' meaning, John adds one of those helpful parenthetical explanatory comments in the very next verse, namely that Jesus had said this to signify the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, this may have been a little bit difficult for Peter to receive. Certainly, as we've seen many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus said much to prepare the apostles for suffering. He said in John fifteen twenty, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John sixteen three, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. But, as we know, the apostles didn't always get everything the first time it was communicated to them. Peter and the rest of the apostles may have actually been expecting some spectacular things now that the Messiah had died and risen again from the dead. Just remember there had been dead saints who were raised from the grave, Matthew 27, when when Jesus had died. And just remember that it's not too long after this appearance of Jesus to the apostles that we find them asking question in Acts 1, verse 6, where they say, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They may have been expecting some pretty, some pretty grandiose things to happen right away. And indeed, certainly as we know the book of Acts, some grandiose things did happen. Probably not the kind that they were expecting. And Jesus told the disciples to be prepared for suffering. And now, specifically, he tells Peter about the kind of death by which he is going to glorify God. When he was young, he could dress himself, he could move about freely, go where he wanted. When he's older, something something different is going to happen. It's been said that in ancient crucifixions, the victim would be forced to carry the the heavy cross beam, and his hands would be stretched out and tied to that beam, and he'd be girded with a loincloth and led like an animal to the place of execution. And given what later church tradition says about the way in which Peter was to die, Eusebius says that he was crucified upside down, we understand here that Jesus is telling Peter that he is one day going to be crucified. He's going to die for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God. And then he says to Peter, follow me. Now given the, the flow of the narrative, there may have been a, a literal element to this right there that day on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. We see in verse 20 that Peter's turning around and he sees, uh, he sees John coming after them, following. It seems, seems like in the, in the account here there's a, there's a walking that is taking place. And so Jesus may have been wanting Peter to, to follow him right then and there. But certainly that's only on the surface. At a much deeper level, Jesus is calling John, excuse me, Peter not to a physical movement, but to a true and spiritual following of the kind that we read together in Luke 9.23. If everyone, anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the kind of following that Jesus was calling Peter to do when he said, Follow me. So Peter is to deny himself, take up his cross, at first figuratively, And at the end of his life, take up his cross, literally, and follow Jesus. He was to follow Jesus by believing in him, by obeying him, and by serving him. And Peter was to do that no matter what happened to him. He was to do that even though now he knew specifically what was going to happen to him in the end. It wasn't going to be fun, pleasant. He was going to be led to where he did not wish to go. Now, this is not to suggest that Peter was an unwilling martyr when his time came, but it is a frank acknowledgment by Jesus that death and martyrdom is not pleasant to flesh and blood. This is not what any of us naturally want. Though we may desire to depart and to be with Christ, nevertheless, the agony of death, especially the agonies of a tortuous death like crucifixion, is not something that we want. Even Jesus himself prayed in Gethsemane, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The point is we all have a natural revulsion from death. We understand that death is unnatural in the strict sense of things, that it is an aberration that is brought on by sin and the curse, that it is an enemy. In fact, the last enemy that is to be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-six. Peter would be willing to suffer, though it would be unpleasant to him. This was simply the cost of following Jesus. So Jesus' command is, follow me. It doesn't matter what happens to you today. It doesn't matter what happens to you years from now. The command of Jesus is, follow me. And the call of the gospel to each one of us is still the same. As the gospel is preached Jesus is calling out to everyone and is saying to them, follow me. And we, like Peter, have to be prepared to follow Jesus regardless of what happens to us. Regardless of the persecution that we may face, regardless of the hardships that may come upon us, our calling is clear. And if you've never followed Jesus before, then today is the day to begin. Again, and as the gospel is preached, Jesus is calling out to you and saying, follow me. And the way to begin following Jesus is by hearing his word, by believing him, believing in him, believing that he is who he said, that he is the son of God, the son of man, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. We need to understand that we need a ransom, that we are sinners, that we have violated the holy law of a holy God that He has created us, that we are His creatures, and therefore it is our responsibility to love Him and to serve Him. And yet, none of us has done so. We have instead run headlong into wickedness. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and the human race has been doing so ever since. As a member of the human race, we were born in original sin, already guilty when we came into this world in Adam, and being born in sin and guilt, all of us have lived up to who we are. We have willingly, of ourselves, violated the law of God, setting our hearts in opposition to him. We haven't loved him with all of our hearts. We have not loved him and served him with complete devotion. We have not obeyed him perfectly. And this is God's standard. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew five forty-eight: Therefore, you are to be perfect. As your Heavenly Father is perfect. The standard for God is not our best effort. The standard of God is His own holiness, His own perfection. And we haven't lived up to that. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. And I'm sure that if we sat down and elaborated a list, we could come up with some specific ways in which you have not loved your neighbors. You see the point. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. And the wonderful news of the Gospel is that Jesus is The exact kind of savior that we need. He's the one who came to save his people from their sins. He died and rose again for the salvation, not of the righteous, but of sinners. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he calls us to come to him. He calls us to trust in him for forgiveness and turn away from the sins in which we have walked so that we may now follow him. And all who believe in him then are to consider themselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And if you've never followed Jesus all of your life up until the day, he says to you today, follow me. And if you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian here. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to obey this command of Jesus, to follow him. Come talk to us. We'd, we'd love to, to tell you more. And I can thankfully say that I know that Many, if not most of you, in this room are already following Jesus. And for you, whether you've been following Jesus for a short time or for a long time, the call is still the same. Jesus says, follow me. Our following of Jesus is not a momentary or temporary thing, something that we do once and we say, okay, I followed him, got it done. No, no, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. And follow Him. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to deny ourselves and follow Christ? Denying ourselves means that we put to death our sinful affections. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5 and following, "...put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming." In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so on the one hand, denying ourselves means killing our sin, killing our unrighteousness. Denying ourselves also means killing our self-righteousness. We kill our self-righteousness, by openly acknowledging our sin, acknowledging that we have done nothing and can do nothing, to put God into our debt. God owes us nothing. Who has given to the Lord that he must repay it? Certainly not us. Certainly no one. And acknowledging that, then that means that salvation is wholly of grace, that as we find in 1 Corinthians one thirty and 31 that it is by God's doing that we are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We come to Christ as sinners with nothing to depend upon but his grace and nothing to hope in but him. We, we come to him in this Desperate spirit, dependent on his grace and confident in our expectation of him. This is the way that we come and this is the way that we continue as we follow him. We must never lapse back into trusting our own righteousness. And we must never lapse into even trusting in the good work which God has done in us as he sanctifies us. Now, Our good works are necessary in the sense that they are fruit and evidence that we are in Christ Even as a a good tree is known by its good fruit, our personal holiness is necessary in the sense that it demonstrates that we have been made new by Christ. If there's there's no holiness in our lives, what does it mean but that Christ is not doing that work in us, that Christ has not saved us, at least not yet? It should serve, our holiness should serve as as evidence uh, to others that we are in Christ, it should serve as a source of assurance to ourselves that we're saved in Christ. But nevertheless, our good works and our holy living is nowhere to rest our hope and confidence. Our hope and our boast and our salvation is only and ever in Christ alone. So denying self means not only denying our unrighteousness, turning away from sin, it also means denying our self-righteousness and resting our souls only in Christ alone. And so we deny ourselves. We take up our cross. Living as we do in a time and place where crosses are used as jewelry and decorations and so on, these words probably don't mean as much to us and don't sound as shocking to us as they did when Jesus first talked about taking up your cross and following him. As one writer expressed it, the cross was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. The cross symbolized the hated Roman oppression and was reserved for the lowest social classes. It was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus. And so when, when we hear the phrase, take up your cross and follow Jesus... If you want to translate that into more contemporary terms, we should be thinking, take up your electric chair, take up your lethal injection. That's what we should be thinking when, we're, when we think about taking up the cross. The cross is an instrument of death. And Jesus says that if anyone wants to come after him, you've got to take up this instrument of death and recognize what this means. As Calvin put it, we give up our natural inclinations and part with all the affections of the flesh and thus give our consent to be reduced to nothing, provided that God lives and reigns in us. This is not a call to asceticism, a call to reject the good things in life that God has given to those who know and believe the truth, but it is a call to follow Christ over and above everything. A call to follow Christ regardless of the cost, a call to follow Christ Despite what our families, our friends, our co-workers, and the broader culture may think of us or do to us, this is a call to regard following Jesus as the most important thing that we can do with our lives. And we must regard following Jesus as the most important thing that we can do with our lives. If we don't follow after Jesus, we're lost. We're without hope, without God in the world. And to encourage us in the following of Christ, we find some reasons right here in the passage that are, that are strengthening to us and that are helpful to us. For one, we see that Jesus knows the future. Right? Jesus tells Peter what is going to happen to him. And the reason why Jesus can tell Peter what's going to happen to him is because Jesus knows. Jesus knows the future. Now, Jesus has not told you or I how we are going to die, but still he knows the future. And more than simply knowing the future, Jesus holds the future. All authority in heaven and on earth uh, is in his hands. Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of God, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Even now, Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies. Think Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Even Jesus' enemies are under his control. Jesus knows the future. Jesus holds the future. And this means that we need not be afraid in following him. We can trust him. And this is important because we live in some very wild times. How good is it to know that the one we follow has all authority in heaven and on earth. We follow him whose father is working all things for the good of those who love him. And secondly, we see that our following of Jesus tends toward the glory of God. John says in verse 19 that Jesus was speaking of the kind of death With which Peter would glorify God. Now, this should be encouraging to us when we encounter persecution, opposition, or even things simply not going well for us because we're following Jesus. When such things happen to us because we're following Jesus, these promote the glory of God. Now, I would add, If you get yourself into trouble because you're being sinful, or because you're being rude, or because you're being unreasonable, the situation is entirely different, right? This is not promoting the glory of God when you're you're acting sinful, being rude, and getting yourself into trouble. We're talking here about following Jesus, and as a result of following Jesus, getting yourself into trouble. The point to be gleaned is that if we're faithfully following Christ, then both the things which we do... In following Christ, and the things which are done to us as a result of us following Christ will result in the glory of God. In regard to the things which we do, we're told that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do all to the glory of God. We know that we should be seeking actively to glorify God with our bodies to honor Him and so forth. But here, what we see is that Peter would glorify God in something which was done to him. He would glorify God by what was done to him, by what others acted upon him. Something that he did not actively seek for as a result of his following Christ. And thus, we're told that if you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. God is glorified in you. If people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ... You can rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. And God is glorified. Our God is the one who says in Psalm 46.10, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God will get glory and he will be glorified through the lives of his people. Or as Peter himself would later express it, 1 Peter 4.14-16 4, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. This means that it's okay to be misunderstood because you are a Christian. People misunderstood Jesus all the time, and... They're going to misunderstand you too if you're following Him. That cannot be helped, at least not always. Only follow Christ and God will be glorified in you. And this means that we can, can breathe a sigh of relief in a way. We can do what Psalm thirty-seven three says when it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. The context there in Psalm 37 is, has to do with the righteous not fearing the oppression and the evil doing of the wicked. And the psalmist exhorts the godly to trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. You don't have to be fearing the oppression and the evil scheming of man. Don't fear what they can do to you. Follow Jesus no matter what happens to you. And therefore we find Paul saying things like this in Philippians one twenty seven: Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or again, Colossians 3, 6, and 7. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. This is what matters for us. Follow Jesus, no matter what happens to you. Keep walking with him as you started walking with him, and God will be glorified. But a second thing that we learn here at the close of the Gospel of John is that we must follow Jesus regardless of what happens to anyone else. We find in verse 20 that when Peter turned around, he looked, he saw John following after them, and perhaps uh, partly out of concern, perhaps partly out of curiosity, it's a little bit difficult to tell why, he asks Jesus this question. He says, Lord, what what about this man? In other words... Lord, I'm going to die a terrible martyr's death for the glory of God. Well, what's going to happen to John? Now, I suppose we might say this is an understandable question. Peter had learned of his own end and might naturally desire to know what was going to happen to John. John uh, was his fellow apostle, close friends. They were always, it seems, together. And how much of this was curiosity? How much was concern? We don't know. But we do know how Jesus responded. Jesus said, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. In other words, Peter, you have your orders. You follow me. Don't worry about John. You worry about Peter. Follow me. Now we'll, we'll come back to this and the, the lesson that we should, should glean from this, but let me, uh, let me, let's first make a few observations about the, the remainder of the chapter, how John rounds out this, uh, this gospel. For one... We find, interestingly enough, in verse 23, one of the first, if not the very first, oral traditions which began in the life of the New Testament church. We're told here about a saying that went out among the brethren. This is a saying that went out among Christians, saying that John would not die. Why did they say this? Well, they said it because they mistook what Jesus actually said here. They thought that his saying, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Meant, in fact, I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And they only left out one word, right? At least for practical purposes. That's what they did in their interpretation of this statement. They left out the word if. And in doing so, they changed Jesus' meaning entirely. It was changed from a purely hypothetical statement concerning John to a statement of fact concerning the death of John. And it is worth pointing out that this was an ancient tradition, a tradition within the church that was at least from the days of the apostles. Someone somewhere along the line dropped the if and at least practically dropped it and then came to a wrong conclusion about what Christ had said. Now, we don't know who first misinterpreted this, right? It's kind of like that old game of telephone where you, where you start out, you know, saying something, whispering it into someone's ear, and then you go down the line, four or five people, and see, see what it sounds like on the other side, right? We don't, know, we don't know who dropped the if, but somebody did. The account of what happened, and the account of what Jesus said, and the misinterpretation, apparently had made the rounds far and wide, even before John wrote his gospel this report had gone out that, hey, hey, John's not going to die because Jesus said, if I want him to remain, so that means Jesus must want him to remain. I think Matthew Henry drew some helpful lessons from this. He said, he said, learn first the uncertainty of human tradition and the folly of building our faith upon it. Here was a tradition, a saying that went abroad among the brethren. It was early, it was common, it was public, and yet it was false. No new saying of Christ's was advanced but only a construction put by the brethren upon what he really did say. And yet, it was a misconstruction. The aptness, uh, he said secondly, observe the, the aptness of men to misinterpret the sayings of Christ. The grossest errors have sometimes shrouded themselves under the umbrage of incontestable truths. And the scriptures themselves have been wrested by the unlearned and the unstable. So, The words of Jesus can easily be twisted. Here they just drop one word and change the meaning entirely. John corrects this error that was circulated by going back to what Jesus actually said, right? Jesus didn't say that this disciple wouldn't die, but he said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And what John does here is what we all should do when we encounter misinterpretations of the word of God. Go back to the source, back to the Bible, back to the words of our Lord. And John sets the record straight. Verse 24, John attests to the fact that he's the one who wrote these things down, that he knows that he is testifying to the truth. And then John ends his gospel with a very interesting sentence there in verse 25. Let's let's look there. He says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, now John's words there can be understood either hyperbolically or literally. And both, in their way, are true. If John were to be understood hyperbolically, it would be as if John were saying, Jesus did many other things while he was upon earth. There were many more sayings, many more teachings, many more miracles and so on, which are not recorded. And if they were recorded, they would take up a lot of room. But what is written is sufficient, and there's no need for more. Now, certainly, that is true. What is written is sufficient. If we were to understand the statement literally, we would probably need to understand it in terms of Christ's deity, namely that in addition to the 33 years in which he was on this earth, the Son of God is the one through whom all things were made. And he has been upholding all things by the word of his power. How could the whole world possibly contain the books which described every act of the eternal Son of God? Psalm 40 verse 5 says, "'Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak them, they should be too numerous to count.'" And if that be true of God the Father, then it is certainly true of God the Son. For we find in John 5.19 that whatever the Father does, these things also the Son does in like manner. And so I myself might be uh, somewhat more inclined to the hyperbolical exposition of verse 25, but others have been inclined to the literal view, and that's fine. Both are true in what they assert. And either way, one would choose to go... It remains true that what has been written concerning Christ is sufficient. We don't don't need more. The evidence is here. It is eyewitness testimony, and it is clear. And John has written these things that we may believe that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. What we have is sufficient for us. But now to return to Jesus' words to Peter... In verse 22, and the lesson that we should glean from them, we are warned here, I think, against an unseemly curiosity about things which are not ours to know. We need to recall the words of Deuteronomy 29.29, where we are told that secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. We don't need to know what will happen to others. We don't even need to know what's going to happen to us. Peter here was given this rare opportunity, that of hearing something particular about his own future from the lips of Jesus. Now, we do not have that opportunity. Not for ourselves, much less for others. And in reality, it doesn't matter. We don't need to know what's going to happen to us and how our lives will end. We don't need to know what will happen to others. Rather, we must look to ourselves Follow Jesus regardless of what happens to us and follow Jesus regardless of what happened to our friends and close associates. Now, Obviously, we care about others. We care about our spouse if we're married. We care about our children if we have them. We care about other family members. We care about friends, fellow Christians, non-Christians whom we know. We care about people. We desire that they would live for Christ. We desire their health and prosperity if God would grant it so that they would live well here on earth and eternally hereafter with Christ forever. That's what we want and that is what we desire. It would bring us perhaps comfort to know that things were going to work out for them. It would perhaps bring us grief to know that our loved ones were not walking with Christ or that perhaps if they were that they were going to suffer greatly. But while we care for others in the grand scheme of things, what is that to us? We don't need to know. We're called to follow Jesus. So let's follow him. We can't control other people. We can't live their lives for them. We can't control what happens to us, much less can we control what happens to other people. And our marching orders are clear. We have to follow Jesus regardless of what happens to other people. Maybe your family members or loved ones will will mock you and deride you and belittle you for following Christ, be it so. Maybe they are making shipwreck of their own lives and are bringing misery to themselves when they ought to know better. Maybe they are following Christ, but are following Christ at a sluggish pace and stumbling a lot along the way. Maybe they are prospering in worldly affairs while you are suffering. Maybe you are being persecuted while they seem to be following Jesus and getting along quite nicely. Don't let any of these things bother you. What is that to you? You follow Jesus. Now, obviously, Christianity is not just a me and Jesus kind of thing, and as if we have no connection with Christians around us. We ought to be walking through the world together in the fellowship of the faith with other believers in the church. And as such, we, we bear one another's burdens and sorrows. But don't let it get to you when you have burdens and sorrows that for all it appears to you, others... Do not have. They might actually have more burdens and sorrows than you suppose. We considered a few weeks ago from uh, from Proverbs 14.10, that the heart knows its own bitterness and the stranger does not share its joy. You know your own sorrows. Don't let it bother you if you don't know the sorrows of other people. and Don't let it bother you if they don't seem to have as many sorrows or the same ones that you have. What is that to you? God the Father loves you. Christ has redeemed you. The Holy Spirit is working inside of you. You're to follow Jesus. There is enough to keep you busy in doing that without worrying about other people. I can't remember the exact context, but I can remember as a child that sometimes I'd be, be thinking about something else or whatever and my brother would say to me. he said, you worry about Neil. You, you think about Neil. You don't, you don't need to be thinking about me or about, about this, that, or the other. And it's the same with us. Jesus says, you follow me. Look to yourself. For us, it ought to be enough to say with Paul, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Christ is sufficient for us. Christ will provide for our, the needs of our souls, and he will bring us at long last to be with him. It's a great joy and honor to follow Christ, so let's, let's not worry about others. By all means, let's, let's bear one another's burdens and sorrows and wrap arms around each other and march toward heaven together, but let's not get caught up in worrying about what's going to happen. Let's trust the Lord for ourselves, trust the Lord to be good to them as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your watch care over us, and your watch care over everyone, and we thank you that we don't have to, to worry about others. Lord, we pray that, uh, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, that we would follow wholeheartedly after him. And uh, Father, we praise you for, uh, for your sovereignty, your providence, and uh, your goodness to us. pray that you'd strengthen us, help us to follow Jesus from the heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.